It's Monday, July 5th, 2010, and you've got Oz in your ears. Captain? General Petraeus, come in, sir. Thank uh, you. Did you have any trouble finding your way around Walter Reed? No, no, no. I know this hospital. Half the men I commanded are right here. Uh, oh, excuse me, sir. Sergeant, I thought I made it clear I can't be disturbed. Who? Yeah, I've seen the bald bastard on TV. What? No. No, tell him he can't have a piece of him. That was Dr. Phil. He wants to come over and join us. Who does he think I am, Britney Spears? Well, you're just about as famous now, General. CNN is running your feigning spell alongside Marie Osmond's similar episode on Dancing with the Stars. I didn't faint. I was uh, taking what we call in Iraq a 10-click nap. Keeps you rested. On your toes. Nevertheless, sir, the Pentagon has requested that uh, after your uh, medical incident on yeah. Capitol Hill that you get a complete physical. Oh, yeah. Just put this thermometer in your ear. Uh, it won't be necessary, Captain. I have a Vitestats implant. Uh, see, right here. You just touch the screen right there. Blood pressure, 120 over 64. Tip, 98.8. Estimated lifespan. Mm, look at that. So, uh, good. We can mm. move right on to the psychological evaluation. Yeah, now, sure, sure, when yeah. you appeared to faint in front of the Senate Armed Services Committee. Was Uh that in any way connected with the fact that you were being questioned by Senator John McCain? Uh, Hell no. I can have that Navy brat for dinner. Well, perhaps it was the line of questioning then, sir. I mean, you were being grilled about the timetable for U.S. troop withdrawal from Afghanistan. Uh Uh-huh. Captain... When that shitstorm comes, I'm standing behind the president. Well, yes, sir. Right no. behind him. Well, let's just take a Completely look at the stop him. I'm be action video him. of the Senate proceedings, okay? Okay. Let's just take a look. See? Watch, sir. As they begin uh-huh. to talk about the record number of American deaths, your shoulders start to slump. Well, there's big numbers. Yeah. Here, when they bring up the brutality of the Taliban and the warlords, your head starts to droop. Now I've been awake for Now, notice how the blood seems to drain out of your face when they call the war unwinnable. Uh, I, uh, General! Uh, General! Wake up! Uh, nurse! Nurse, get me 40 cc's of fratricide stat! Can't face it. Whoa, just had a big holiday, and here we are up on Radio Free Oz on RadioFreeOz.com. I'm your host, Peter Bergman, our co-host, David Osman. Kaboom, kaboom, kaboom. Oh, the dogs were not happy this weekend. No, and in fact, uh, my girlfriend had to sedate her dog. Because living here on this small island, I've never heard so much. Well, I remember once. Down in L.A., many, many years ago, I went on uh, Venice Beach, and it was like being in Vietnam. There was explosions and sparklers and smoke. It was really creepy. Oh, that happened to me once in San Francisco. It was creepy like that. Yeah, on the beach. Yeah. Same thing. Yeah, yeah, don't go to the beach on the 4th of July, except where else can you see the fireworks? We have fireworks all over this island. It goes on for And, you know, I'm I'm not such a great fan of the 4th of July. It's okay, but I like today, the 5th of July, Independence from America Day. Ah, Independence from America Day. Day. And and that's some of the spirit we're going to hit today. Mm -hmm. You know, we're going to do like the American pageant uh, live that the Firesign Theater's done, a little history, Mm -hmm. right? You've got some patriotic gore coming up. It's bloody good. And generally, of course, everything we do is as of the now, and that's where America is, so. So uh, let's get at it. I have said before that the GOP is disintegrating in front of our very eyes, and I am concerned that we are going to be looking at decades of one-party democracy. And 
they're doing it. Here they go. They're just, you know, putting the old IED up the old butt for the third time. The Senate Republicans have blocked legislation to extend unemployment benefits through November and renew dozens of individual and business tax breaks. Let me just say right off the bat, they think and probably rightfully so, that the poor don't vote. So who cares? What they forget is that the recently unemployed do vote, and they vote with a passion, and they tell their friends. You insult the Hispanics, they're Democrats forever. They should go back and take a look at the demographics of the New Deal. You screw the poor, you screw the lower middle class, they vote Democrats for the rest of their life. So the vote was 57 to 41, with 60 votes needed to end debate and advance the bill. All 40 Republicans, the NOP and one Democrat, Blue Dog Ben Nelson, that son of a blue dog, objected because the bill would have added $33 billion to the deficit. We just can't keep kicking the can down the street and say, oh, well, take care of it later. Uh, It'll be offset later, said Senator George Voinovich, a centrist Republican from Ohio who is retiring. That's all we've been doing these last couple of years, and I'm fed up with it. Well, you know, I'm fed up with you. Little chance, Georgie boy, that you'll be unemployed when you go back to the Buckeye State. You you won't have to stand in line for a chit. You can cash in all those chits you've collected representing the rich and powerful for two useless decades. Senator Byron Dorgan, uh, the Democrat from North Dakota, sees it differently. Now they're going to make their last stand on deficits by trying to take money away from the unemployed in terms of extending benefits. That's sort of a bizarre priority as far as I'm concerned. $33 billion that haven't been offset? Well, now, let's just take, what is that, 15 days of the defense budget? What is it, the kind of loophole you could squeeze out of Wall Street or all of those privileged corporations? Yeah, I'm talking like a populist. I'm talking like a new New Dealer. Yeah, soak the rich. Yeah. Speculative um, instruments, derivatives, credit swaps, all that. 95% tax on profits. It's absolutely non-productive. Yes. Serious redistribution of income. Use it to support the unemployed and get them back to work. This is pump priming the economy. This is Keynesian economics. It's worked before and it's going to work again. The House reauthorized the benefits as part of a broader domestic aid package before the benefits lapsed at the beginning of June. But uh, Senate Democrats have been unable to overcome a Republican filibuster since then. By the way, recently, the Democrats tried to bring it forward in the House and didn't get the two-thirds they needed because they brought it under some sort of special rule. So they're going to go back, and maybe uh, by the time you hear this, so I'm a little ahead of the time, they will have indeed and will pass the extension in the House. And then it's a matter of getting it to the Republicans and the, and, and the Democrats in the Senate who must not leave for their 4th of July vacation without extending it. It would be a sin if they didn't. Okay, because without the federally funded benefits, people unemployed through no fault of their own are eligible for only 26 weeks of state-funded benefits, even though the average duration of unemployment is currently 34 weeks, and 46% of the unemployed are now designated as structurally unemployed. There's no work. So, as of last week, 1.2 million long-term unemployed, read structural, have missed checks that they would have received had they been laid off closer to the beginning of the recession. 
Since 1959, Congress has never let extended unemployment benefits expire when the national unemployment rate is above 7.2%. It's 9 plus officially, closer to 18 if you take all the people who don't report in and have given up looking for a job. So I tell you, GOP, if you want to save your butt, you better get off of them and vote for this thing. I know you won't. I know you're going away. Bye bye. Okay, Pete, here's an item that came up uh, in The Onion, The Onion, which we've, uh, I've gotten it for free ever since we were interviewed in it. They're, they're really nice, those Onion folks. And they're, they're funny. And they're it's funny. funny. Yeah, it is. It really makes me laugh. This is not a funny item, though. This item fits, fits the purposes of Oh, you're looking for truth, show. maggot page. <laughs> That's right. This is uh, from Savage Love, the very bottom of the, the sex columnist on the last page of The Onion. This. Congrats. Two years ago, an openly gay student at Hudson High School in upstate New York ran for prom queen. He won, but school officials denied him the crown. This year, two openly gay students, best friends, both boys at Hudson High, ran for prom king and queen and won in a landslide. School officials didn't stand in their way this time, and uh, Charlie Feruzzi and Jimmy Howard got their crowns. Congrats to 2008's rightful prom queen, Augie Abatacola. Congrats to this year's prom queen and king. Congrats to the school officials who learned their lesson. And congrats to all the students at Hudson High. Yeah, who created the landslide. Now, what this does to me is that I truly am old school because I go back to my prom at Shaker Heights High School, you know, when we had a prom queen and a prom king that we voted for. And I'm trying to say, what if two guys who were lovers ran for prom queen? Even prom- if, it's out, out of the – I mean, it's completely – it might as well be Mars. Even if they were two guys who were Dadaists, it wouldn't have happened. Wouldn't have happened. Wouldn't it, have completely happened. out of the question. Things have changed so remarkably and we haven't kept up. What I like is the by a landslide because everybody at the school must have been so delighted to have this opportunity to just, you know, just kick a little sand in the face of the, of the school administration. That's, that's when things really pay off. Pakistan has been playing us in Afghanistan for decades. Now they're coming forward. It's not like sneaky anymore. Now it's just they're right on top of the table. They're exploiting the troubled U.S. military effort in Afghanistan, the failing U.S. military effort, to drive home a political settlement with Afghanistan that would give Pakistan important influence there, but is likely to undermine United States interests, so say Pakistani and American officials. Hey, Pakistan has been after, as I say, has been after Afghanistan since the get-go. They want to use them as a buffer against India, and they just want to control them. Why not? Pakistan is presenting itself as the new viable partner for Afghanistan to President Hamid Karzai, who has soured on the Americans. Oh, really? We're spending billions to keep that bozo in office, and he's soured on us. You know why? Because he doesn't think we're going to win. Pakistani officials say they can deliver the network of Sirajuddin Haqqani, an ally of al-Qaeda, who runs a major part of the insurgency in Afghanistan, into a power-sharing arrangement. Yeah, right, right. 
Sirajuddin, the, the son of uh, Juladuddin Haqqani, however he pronounces his name, one of the major Muhujadeen, no friend of America, connected with al-Qaeda, and he's going to get into power sharing. Yeah, hold your breath. Washington has watched with some nervousness as General Kayani and Pakistan's spy chief, Lieutenant General Ahmad Shuja Pasha, shuttle between Islamabad and Kabul, telling Mr. Karzai that they agree with his assessment that the United States cannot win in Afghanistan, and that a post-war Afghanistan should incorporate the Haqqani network, a longtime Pakistani asset. Hey, Pakistan, if we weren't guaranteeing Islamabad one way or the other, the Taliban would be up your butt right now. Some officials in the Obama administration have not ruled out incorporating the Akani network in an Afghan settlement, though they stress that President Obama's policy calls for al-Qaeda to be separated from the network. Oh, yeah, that's good. We want them separated. Bye-bye. Go home. American officials are skeptical that that can be accomplished. The Taliban, including the Haqqani group, are ready to, in quotes, do a deal over al-Qaeda, senior Pakistani official close to the Pakistani army said. The Haqqanis could tell al-Qaeda to move elsewhere because it has uh, been given nine years of protection since 9-11, said the official. Wait a minute. But this official acknowledged that the Akanis and Al-Qaeda were too thick with each other for a separation to happen. They had provided each other with fighters, money, and other resources over a long period of time, he said, probably intermarried. Probably some of the guys are dating some of the guys in Al-Qaeda. Also, there appeared to be no idea where the Qaeda forces would go, and no answer to whether the Haqqanis would hand over Osama bin Laden and his second-in-command, Ayman al-Zawahiri, the official said. Now, there's a real good bet. Go to Vegas and bet on the fact that the Haqqanis are going to hand over Osama and Ayman. You know, not in a blue moon. Well, Peter, with all this talk about, uh, you know, aliens and Mexico and Mexariz and all of that, I had to get a book called Patriotic Gore out of my library. This came out in the early 60s, written by Edmund Wilson, a really smart guy. And I thought, if I looked in this, why we could maybe explain why Arizona is where it is and Mexico is where it is. Let me read this. Like modern France and the Soviet Union, we inaugurated our national existence with the expulsion of the agents of a monarchic power. And as soon as that had been accomplished, the process of expansion began. This, except for our struggles with the Indians, to which I shall return later, was for some time peaceful enough. We bought Louisiana from the French and Florida from the Spanish. In the case of Texas, we colonized it when it was still a part of a Mexican province and under the rule of Spain. And we made offers to buy it from Mexico, but the Mexicans would not sell. The colonists from the United States eventually drove the Mexicans out and set up an independent republic, which later became part of the United States. Well, now, with the British, we made a settlement to take over the Oregon Territory, but with the relatively incompetent Mexicans, we continually became more high-handed. We demanded of Mexico the payment of a very large compensation for property belonging to Americans, which had been lost in her revolutions, and for Americans who had been shot in Mexico. We offered to cancel this debt if the Mexicans would cede to us that part of their territory which lay north of the Rio Grande, and which we claimed as a part of Texas, and we tried to buy California, 
which was also a part of Mexico, but which was already being settled in the northern part by pioneers from the United States. The Mexicans refused both these offers, and President Polk retorted by sending troops to occupy the territory north of the Rio Grande. The Mexicans defended it. The United States declared war, invaded Mexico, and captured the capital city, and took over, by force of arms, New Mexico, California, and all the rest of the unsettled West. This amounted to more than half the territory originally owned by Mexico. The government of Mexico was compelled to sign a treaty with us by which it was agreed that in compensation for the land that had been taken from it, we should pay them $15 million and let them off from responsibility for the claims that the United States had pressed. The sentiment that justified the Mexican War may be illustrated by an extract from a letter written in 1847 by William Gilmore Sims, the South Carolinian novelist and publicist, to South Carolinian Senator James Hammond. You must not dilate against military glory. War is the greatest element of modern civilization, and our destiny is conquest. Indeed, the moment a nation ceases to extend its sway, it falls a prey to an inferior but more energetic neighbor. The Mexicans are in the condition of those whom God seeks to destroy, having first made mad. They are doing their best to compel us to conquer them. It is now impossible that it should be otherwise. Mark my words, our people will never surrender an inch of the soil they have won. They are too certainly of the Anglo-Norman breed for that. Oh, we will pay for it, perhaps, but only out of the assessed expense and damage of the conquest to us. So there you are, Pete. It, it seems like we fought a war and, and took Arizona away. I'd like to dedicate this song to my girlfriend, America Sanchez but especially to my three dogs, Benny, Marta, and Baby. Oh, beautiful, for spacious sky, for amber waves of rain, for purple mountain majesty. The beauty place America Oh America God shed his grace on me And crown that good Brotherhood from sea to shining sea Oh beautiful Oh you're so beautiful with your spacious skies And those amber waves of green And those purple mountain majesties Above that fluted plain Sha-la-la-la 
America, oh my America, may God thy glory find till all success be nobleness and every gain. Sometimes you're not so sweet But I love you, I love you, I love you Cause you're my, my home My home, my home, my home, sweet home Sometimes when I see you You know, Peter, one of my favorite um, uh, pieces that the Fireside Theater ever did, and boy, did we do it a lot, we called the American Pageant. I love it. First time we did it was... um, in San Diego, I think, on stage before we ever recorded it. Yeah, people were sure surprised. Well, it's it's a really interesting look at the history of America kind of squeezed together. And it changed every time we did it. Yeah, and there's parts of it, actually, that we couldn't really do live today. You'll hear it, you know, because it's not politically correct. Of course, I think it's more than – I think it's uber-politically correct. I think it takes on the whole – well, you'll see. Anyway, it, it Babe Demographico. That's, that's me, you. Right. Has just bought a car from Ralph Spoilsport. Ralph Spoilsport Motors here in the city up emphysema. Mm-hmm. And he's driving down the, um, the, the, the freeway, which is already the, the, in progress. The Antelope Freeway. Already. It's the Antelope Freeway, yep. right? And past the Mobius Strip exit, or yep. does he take uh, it? Well, yeah, he may take it. And then he gets lost, and the little men come popping out of his air conditioner, and yeah. he doesn't quite know where he where is. Where he is, but he's, he needs a place to rest. And he, so he goes looking for the cleanest motel in town. Hello? 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 Anybody there? Yeah, sure, bud. Just a minute here. Yeah, yeah. Hey, welcome to the only oh. nice motel in town. <laughs> How long are you going to be with us? Well, actually, I thought I was going to sleep in my car. Oh, sure. no, no, no. No need to do that. Just fill out this card right here. Is that going to be a president's or plastic? Well, actually, sir, you see, this is already dirty. I mean, I can't get you to believe that I'm Mr. and Mrs. John Q. Smith of any town, USA? No problemo. Hey. Glad to have you with us, Mr. and Mrs. Smith. Hey, 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 I'm not really Mr. and Mrs. John Q. Smith of any town, oh, U.S. That's okay. I'm not Joe. Hell, he's not even Ed. No, I'm not even Ed. <laughs> yeah, I never thought of that. <laughs> hey, how about bending a couple in the doodah room, if you get my meaning? If you catch his drift. Well, actually, guys, I just 
drove here all the way from California. And boy, are his tires tired. Tires are tired. tired. <laughs> yeah, tired. <laughs> Desk clerk, can I have my key? Your key, sure. What about uh, A flat? Here we go. Hey, I can tell by the pie on your tie that you're an American wolf. So am I. Hi, Bob. Howdy. How do you do? And while we're on the subject, and while we're on the subject, and while we're on the subject, how's your old wazoo? Hey. Hey, what's it all about? Well, it's about this long. About that long. Yeah. It's about this wide. And it's about this country about which he's singing about. I was born an American. I was raised by a Mexican. And I'll die a bohemian in hysteria with comedians. Wow. Yep. Well, you see, we got a lot of uh, everything in this land of ours. Yeah, and a lot of places to put it in. Yep. <laughs> but who am us anyway? Well, well, we, we, were, we were small. We were very small. Ang we were angry men. Running away, running away from, from Europe. Uh, Europe. We had Africa. hairy feet and, and burning feces. No, not burning feces. Feces. Well, hairy, we were running away from hairy feces. We were running away from hairy faces. From uh, his mother and uh, his, his, his ex-wife. My ex-wife. And, the and uh, the infomercials and junk mail. And the draft. And the draft. And we took to them. And they took to us. And what do you think they took? Oil from Canada, gold from Mexico, geese from their neighbor's backyard, honk honk, corn from the Indians, tobacco from the Indians, Cleveland from the Indians, Indonesia for the Indonesians! Yes, Rian, Veterinarian's Day. Yeah, but we couldn't do it alone. No, we needed the hope, the faith, the prayers, the fears, the sweat, the pain, the votes, and, and the beers, the broken homes, the mobile phones. The total degradation of the... Who? You! The little guy. And across you all, we flung one shining steel ray. All aboard! Roosevelt! How about that, Mr. Yippie? <laughs> Mr. Yippie? Mr. Non-Inhaler? Well, actually, Bubba, I just never exhaled. <laughs> what have 
you done for any of us lately, huh? Well, let's see. I recycle my rubbers in the composter. Yeah. And I go down every day to the DMV and vote. Yeah. And, and I started a pension plan for the kid that cuts my lawn. Oh, <laughs> come on, come on. They weren't politically correct like that back in 1776. You know, they, they didn't have time back in 1776. Nah. Back in 1776, boy, they was too busy singing songs like Yankee Doodle won the war using French munitions. The English marched with German bands, but save up that musician. Yeah, that's right. We won in 1776. Right. Actually, it was 1779. And then we won in 1793, the Whiskey Rebellion. Then we won the War of 1812. And we won the Mexican-American War in 1848. Hey! That's right. It wasn't until 1860. We finally found an enemy worthy of ourselves. Yeah. Ourselves. No one came marching home again. No way. No way. No one came marching home again in blue or gray. That's right. Nobody did come marching home. And, and then, somehow, suddenly, it was 1917. And a, a, a great American president, President Woodrow Woodpecker <laughs> announced to an anxious nation, we will not go to war. We will go to war. Pack up your body in a body bag and we won't come back. We won't come back. We won't come back. Then they didn't come back. And you know, then somehow it was 1938. And their schnifter raised his ugly schnifter. And he sang. Dropping those bombs again. <laughs> what could we to do? Dropping bombs on you. We, we can't, can't help it. And did you come to her defense back in those dark days then, did you, lad? Well, they did. Yeah. Yeah. They, they come did. from the from the endless plains of Iowa. Yeah. The lonesome trains of Illinois. And the white trash mountains of Virginia. <laughs> and that's why we're here and they're there. That's right. They didn't turn their backs on America's fighting men's when that first class mail come a knock, knock, knocking at his front door. I come a knock, knock, knocking at your front door. <laughs> Greetings! From the president of the untied snakes of Uremia. <laughs> and by the way, you are the president of the untied snakes of Uremia. Hugh ain't got no friends on the left. You're, You're right. right. Hugh ain't got no friends on the right. You're, You're left. left. Hound dog. One, two, poon tang. Tree frog. Hound dog. Poon tang. Tree frog. I'm white. I'm white. He's white. I'm white. He's white. I'm white. Don't want to fight. 
I'd rather stay in Little Rock. I better get a note from my doc. One, two, one, two, one, two, one, two. I'll dodge the draft. Oh, what the hell? I'll put the spin on James Carvel. One, two, one, two. White House 92. White House 96. You don't have to learn to use a gun if you can make a deal with Senator Nunn. One, two, three, four, five, six. Well, Pete, here's something on international advertising that uh, cropped up in a recent New Yorker magazine. About six pages uh, had have color advertising in the magazine. The inserts been bought by the government of Canada, or as they like to say, the gouvernement du Canada. Government of Canada. I got it. Got to say it in both languages, right? right. But this is only in one language, and and you can kind of understand where they're coming. Great great place to do business is their line. Canada has the strongest economic growth, the soundest banking system in the world, the highest skilled workforce for innovation, the lowest taxes, the lowest government debt, and a dynamic free market environment. These are all on several different pages, and it shows you artworks and everything. But this was the one I liked a lot. Canada has world-class cities and world-class cultural activities, universal health care, safe streets and people-friendly communities, and a pristine, natural environment. Our exceptional quality of life will take your breath away. Now, I'm talking, we're moving to Canada here. Yeah, this they got is all good. that? Yeah, and they mention universal health, yep. right? And take your th- Right yeah. there. Yeah, there you go. Oh, Canada, you know, uh, America takes my breath away, but that's when I was living in L.A. and couldn't see three feet in front of me. <laughs> Americans could not see the future clearly in 1945, but they could look back over the war they had just waged. They might have reflected with some discomfort on how slowly they had awakened to the menace of Hitlerism in the isolationist 1930s, or how callously they had barred the door to those seeking to flee from Hitler's Europe, or how heedlessly they had provoked Japan into a probably avoidable war in a region where few American interests were at stake, or how they had largely fought with America's money and machines and with Russia's men, had fought in Europe only late in the day against a foe mortally wounded by three years of brutal warfare in the East, had fought in the Pacific with a bestiality they did not care to admit, or how they had profaned their constitution by interning tens of thousands of citizens largely because of their race, or how they had denied most black Americans a chance to fight for their country, on how they had sullied their nation's moral standards with terror bombing in the closing months of the war, and how their leaders' stubborn insistence on unconditional surrender had led to the incineration of hundreds of thousands of already defeated Japanese, first by fire raids, then by nuclear bat blast, on how poorly Franklin Roosevelt had prepared for the post-war era, how foolishly he had banked on goodwill and personal charm to compose the conflicting interests of nations, how little he had taken his countrymen into his confidence, even misled them about the nature of the peace that was to come, and how they had abandoned the reforming agenda of the New Deal years to chase in wartime after the sirens of consumerism, and how they alone among warring people had prospered, emerging unscathed at home, while 405,399 American soldiers, sailors, marines, and airmen had died. Those men were dignified in death by their service, but they represented proportionally fewer military casualties than in any other major belligerent country. Beyond the war's dead and wounded and their families, few Americans had been touched by the staggering sacrifices and unspeakable anguish that the war had visited upon millions of other people around the globe. 
Johnny went to war at the tender age of 17 Went to fight the devil 9,000 miles away In a land that Johnny never even heard of We got him fighting devils And every day Think his mama prays for her baby every day. Another demon makes his way every day. There's another devil. down in Baghdad, the taping bombs to babies, they're going to hunt the devil. Well, I hope it's true that road to hell is paved with good intentions, only the devil can tell. And every day, we send another on his way. Think his mama prays for her baby every day. Another demon makes his way every day. It's another devil. things about being in a an election year it's, it seems that every year is an election year by the way i mean you know we're always talking people are always running for something it, it, you get you get a chance to really get into some very interesting characters like our certifiable senate senatorial candidate in kentucky rand paul now he wants to build a fence along the u.s border nothing unusual in that is there david no no senator dang right. fence yeah. is right with him yep that, that, that's how except that paul wants the fence to be electric and he wants it built underground. Wait a minute, a fence underground? Yeah, I yeah. don't. I have, I have a. a well, we, you know the way people are training dogs now, where they put those special collars on them, and if they go past a certain place, there's wires they underground. They electrocute the dog. It they falls electrocute over the dog. So yeah, I guess right. he wants to put collars on potential illegal aliens, undocumented people. Nice collars, probably. You know, mm-hmm. with a little style. He's, he dresses well, kind of. And then if they try to come across the border, oh. They go back home. Uh-huh. How do you get the collars on the Mexicans? Hold on. Okay. Among the variety of proposals to stem illegal immigrants, uh, the construction of an underground electric fence appears to stand alone on the extreme. I think that Huff is being kind here. There is little 
contemporary evidence of other Republican officials proposing such a project, even among the most conservative of the bunch. Indeed, when approached in the halls of the Senate and asked about the idea, though not told who proposed it, National Republican Senate Committee Chair John Cornyn, they don't come any right-winger than him, assumed it was a joke. Well, you know what? It is a joke. So in a speech in downtown Paducah, Kentucky, Paul pegged the cost of his quixotic idea at somewhere between 10 and $15 million. Well, that's cheap. That's I gotta small say. change. Yeah. The benefits of an underground fence, he argued, were that it would not have the symbolism of a Berlin Wall-like structure and it would be considered less offensive to Hispanic voters who are already fleeing the country. Less offensive to Hispanic voters who are already fleeing the country? I don't get where this man's coming from. No, he I... isn't paying his syntax. Well, you don't have to wait 20 or 30 years to enjoy the over-the-border taste of Anchor Baby Beer. Our secret? It's a foreign yeast that's been brought over to America, coddled and fermented until it wakes up to the call of action. Hey, it won't destroy your way of life. Only your taste for any other brew than Anchor Baby Beer. Anchor Baby, a product of Blackout Brewery's Oath Keeper, Nevada, now legal in 38 states. Another example, you know, between the vast gap between Senator Byrd, the former Senator Byrd, whom we love dearly and was a great orator and a great intellectual, and what's sitting in the House of Representatives now? Okay, Representative Sue Myrick, a Republican, no surprise, of North Carolina, is pressing uh, Homeland Security Secretary Napolitano for more surveillance of Hezbollah operations along the U.S.-Mexico border. You might ask why, Dave. Uh, I, I, I'm, I'm speechless, but okay, why? <laughs> Quote, Former intelligence officials, maybe this is like Gomert's uh, uh, retired FBI guy. Mm -hmm. It's always former, former. Inte former yeah. intelligence officials have pointed to the terrain that makes up our border, especially in the San Diego border sector, as a reason why drug cartels have been partnering with Hezbollah. This terrain is very much like the areas around Israel's borders. And as well, Hezbollah is extremely skilled in the construction of tunnels. Oh, of course. Uh, uh, why, yes. Um, so why is Hezbollah doing this just because they have, like... Is, well, it's like sorry, home. Like, well, like hiring, you know, uh, somebody that knows how to, you know, mine for gold. They come over and they teach you how to mine for gold. This is, like, but digging tunnels is... Digging tunnels the, and bringing drugs in and doing, something, and doing yeah. something bad because that's what Hezbollah is around for. Oh, boy. Well, get thee to Gaza. This one from the Gray Lady. Only on Wall Street, in the rarefied realm of buyout moguls, could you actually have, at this point in time, too much money. Private equity firms, where corporate takeovers are planned and plotted, today sit atop an estimated $500 billion. But the dealmakers are desperate to find deals worth doing, and the clock is ticking. Why not just take it away from them? In recent years, private investment firms have amassed business empires rivaling the mightiest public corporations, buying up household names like Hilton Hotels, Dunkin' Donuts, and Neiman Marcus. Critics contend the leverage buyouts can saddle takeover targets with dangerous levels of debt. Yeah, let me tell you one quickie on this. Michael Milken, the man that, uh, you know, came out of jail where he bloody well belonged, you know, with, with cancer and without his toupee. 
Well, one of the deals he put together when he was creating all of this junk bond leverage buyout, because most of it is done with junk bonds, bought up uh, and took over a timber company in California that was so saddled with junk debt that they had to go and cut down all the virgin redwoods on the land they owned, which they had deferred from doing for a lot of good reasons. So Michael Milken should give all of his money to the poor, go out into the redwood forest, maybe up there in Mendocino, and cry and pray for forgiveness. I could probably do the same thing. Anyway, uh, yeah. But unlike indebted homeowners, highly leveraged companies under the care of private equity have so far dodged the big bust many have predicted. After an unprecedented burst of buyouts during the boom leading up to 2008, a vast majority of these companies are hanging on. Whether they will avoid a reckoning is uncertain. And when the reckoning comes... You think it's they, those boys that are, that are going to get it in the keister? I don't think so, unless we set it up that way. Public pension funds, public pension funds, university endowments, insurance companies, and other institutions have pledged to invest many billions with these Wall Street wankers, provided these high-rolling bozos can find companies to buy. What are public pension funds and universities doing handing you know, money over to these tumblers? Private equity funds generally tie up investors' money for 10 years, but they typically they have to invest all the money within the first three to five years, uh, or they have to kind of give the money back with interest. All right, here are some of the uh, industry's biggest players. David Rubenstein of the Carlyle Group. The Carlyle Group, that's where old Bush and all those Saudis sit around wanking each other. The Carlyle Group, Henry Kravis of Kohlberg Kravis Roberts, and David Bonderman of TPG. I don't know what that stands for. A terrible public groping, who knows. They have more than $10 billion apiece in uncommitted capital, which is known as dry powder on the street. Well, guys, hurry up and find some corporations to plunder before the American public goes totally populist and makes you invested in libraries, homeless shelters, Head Start programs, school lunches, crumbling bridges and hospices. Not exactly your hot shots cup of tea. And you know what the big problem is? Is that $500 billion is in the hands of people who have never done a lick of practical work. They don't know a widget from a wombat. You, they don't know about machine tooling. They don't know about motherboards. They don't know about going to work. All they know is taking over things. The spreadsheet. That's it. They bow down to the spreadsheet. They don't see the people. They don't see the pain. They don't believe in progress. All they believe in is numbers. And they're killing us by the numbers. It's almost over, Jimmy. And we're back where it all began. We're here in No Man's Park, the tiny square of weeds where Ducktown was born. With me here in this field are field reporters, Peter Protector, How do you do? Charles Garage, Benson. and that little voice in my ear, our producer, Thatch Switcher. Benji, glad to be here. Well, you're the <clears throat> oldest, Charles. Kick it off. Well, from here, Ed, I think the big story is visualization. Just look at this sodden postage stamp of ground. 
Over there, you know, originally we had a few merchants, some settlers, some pilgrims, some trappers, some soldiers. They all had buckles on their shoes, and uh, these soldiers would have all been in armor. Just folks. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Well, over here, over there, there were uh, some Indians, uh, Mohawks, Buttes, and uh, wraparounds, yeah. all dressed up and looking like courier and knives. Mm, guardians, guardians of, of this hope. sacred Sacred. land. And in between, this sumptuous feast, untouched as yet by hand of man. Mm, I like some of that. (laughs) Well, the leader of the white man spoke. Let's whop them Indians, Mm, he said. The Indians, of course, uh, had nothing to say. And so, of course, they said uh, nothing. (laughs) I think we can agree that was a typical scene, uh, gentlemen, one which uh, was to be repeated thousands of times. In the thousands of times to come. Uh, Except... The first one was different. (laughs) Well, well, why did the first one have to be different? No, here's the thing. It didn't seem any different at first. No, 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 no. You see, uh, one of the soldiers walked over to one of the Indians, and he uh, throttled him like like this. Oh, sorry. Sorry. Sorry, old man. (laughs) Well, uh, you can bet that that made the white folks in the buckled shoes as proud as punch. Manifest destiny! Uh, that Indian is good and dead, said the minister's wife. A dead Indian is good, cleverly rejoined the captain of the dragoons. The only good engine is a dead engine, said a little boy. <laughs> and they all applauded. <laughs> <laughs> and you know they were about to let the little boy eat the Indian's heart. Mm, yum, yum. <laughs> when someone, I think it was the minister, reminded them that they were all Christians. And eating the heart of an Indian isn't really something Christ would do. <laughs> no, 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 no. no. <laughs> oh. Well, the Indian didn't say anything because... Of course. He was dead. Good heavens! Exclaimed the chief of the Indians. These people not friendly. Hmm, depend on what you mean by friendly. Said the medicine man. Depend on what you mean by people. Said the chief. (laughs) And he shot an arrow at the soldier which bounced off the soldier's armor. Exclaimed the minister's wife, and she raised her buckly musket. Said the musket, and a couple of Indians fell dead, clutching their intestines, which spilled out on this ground. Well, folks, this really got things going. There was a lot of shooting and dodging behind trees and skulking and so on. The Indians killed a few settlers. And these settlers killed a lot. And the feast was still untouched, except for those muskets. Yes. And it looked like democracy was being made safe for America. When, all of a sudden, gentlemen, a very strange and unprecedented thing happened. What happened was, and you know this uh, does sound a little strange. (laughs) Yes. Well, what happened was... Well, all the white people turned into black people. Like that. Now, you may think this amazed and befuddled the Indians. Oh, not so. All the Indians turned into Chinese. This was quite a turn of events. Then, folks, a funny thing happened. All the settlers took off their buckles and the girdles and started dancing and painting each other. And, and a few days later, someone... Uh, we think it was the minister. ...said... What about this war we was a having? Oh, wait, wait a minute. What was we fighting about? I think we was going to take their land. Oh, that's unthinkable. And besides, what do you mean, their land? Hey, I dig it. It's no man's land. Ah, yes. Well, you see, after only a short hesitation, the black people and the yellow people got together socially. Hey, ah, I can't believe I want to do the duck. 
and a little hanky-panky took place amongst the younger folk. <laughs> and everything got sort of blended together. Until yes. one day they all looked around and there was nothing but Indians. That's right, folks. Absolutely nothing but Indians. You see? And here comes the headline. The definition of an Indian is... White man. Who becomes a black man. Who becomes a yellow man. Who becomes a white man. Who becomes a black man. Who becomes a yellow man. Well, some may say that's an oversimplification. Well, it is an oversimplification. Yes, I agree, yes. But from here today, it looks to us like it's better than killing people. Doesn't it? Don't you think? Oh, I'd agree. Oh, yes, I, I, think so. I don't think we should kill anybody. Should we wrap no, this up? No, no, I agree with Let's that. get out of the rain. <clears throat> oh, yeah, that's a very good idea. Good program. I'm not a dog. Yeah, very good show. Well, that's the end of their broadcast and our broadcast and and Independence from America Day. Right, yeah, Pete? well, tomorrow it's back to the red, white, and black and blue because this is Radio Free Oz brought to you by the Oz team. David Osmond's a co-host. I'm your host, Peter Bergman. John Cummings does the ones and zeros. Phil Fountain does all the beautiful graphics. Tom Goodwillow is on top of the website. Chaz Glass does the financials. He spreads the spreadsheets. Dave Maloney does the recording. Ain't it beautiful? Bill McIntyre produces it. And Scott Wild makes sure we're up there in the social media. See you tomorrow for another year in Inside America. Hurrah, hurrah, hooray.